0: Good evening. My name is Carrie. I'm a grateful member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Hi, Zoom world. Um, By the grace and mercy of my creator, I'm be able to I'm able to stand here in front of you today. Um, and my hope is to carry a message of recovery and hope. Um, originally from South Florida, um, I grew up with my grandmother for about nine and a half, 10 years. Um, uh, my father left before birth. My mother handed me off to my grandmother, and I don't want to paint the wrong picture. My my mother is a beautiful individual, be, beautiful human being. Um, I just I just don't think she was ready to uh, to, to raise a child at the time. Um, so I lived with my grandmother that up uh, until I was about nine and a half, ten, the best I can recollect. I haven't had a conversation or made my amends to my mother yet. So I'm looking to. Um, to take care of that here with this amends process that I'm going through with the big book workshop that I'm in. Um, and I just got some really good news. Um, I have an open indictment in a D- D- DWI case in New York. And um, I just got some really good news that the warrant was vacated in December, um, which makes absolute no sense. There's a lawyer's office in New York and a DA's office that are completely baffled because. Um, with an open indictment um, and, and with the, the felony case, because it was my second DWI in New York state, um, they said they shouldn't have vacated the warrant. So I don't know what's going on. The only thing I can chalk it up to is a power greater than myself, in okay, my life. So that's what I hope to convey here to you today. Um, so I grew up with my grandmother so I was about nine and a half, 10, um, you know, I noticed some things living with my grandmother. I had two sets of friends in the neighborhood. One, two sets were on this side. A set was on that side. There's Marky and Ryan over here and Danny and Darren over here. And um, I remember Marky asking me one day where my mom was. And I didn't have an answer. I I really, I didn't even know what that was. I thought my grandmother was my mother. Um, Then he asked me where my father was. I I had no clue what that was. Like I I didn't. I probably seven, eight years old, the best I can recollect. And uh, I remember from that moment, I remember looking at their family dynamic, Marky and Ryan, they had a very affluent family. Um, They had everything they needed. They had a younger sister. I had no siblings. And they had the whole family there. And I remember that was the first time where I I kind of wondered what was going on. But of course, in that young of an age, it just kind of went right off, you know. Um, And the best that I can remember, somewhere between seven and nine-ish, I started snooping around my grandmother's house. And um, I found this this metal box that had a bunch of cash and coins in it. And it ended up being like silver certificates. I would find out later, um, dollar coins, 50 cent pieces. And we go to the grocery store every couple of weeks or so. And, um, my, uh, my hobby at the time was GI Joe. And I remember finagling a way to get the money, go to the grocery store. I'd ask my grandmother to go to the toy aisle or the magazine aisle. And I would, um, I'd go up, I went go grab a G.I. Joe, go up to the register. The first time I did it, I didn't have enough money because I, I did not account. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and so I remember a few weeks later, I, I got, got, I made sure I had enough money um, and I was able to do that. And just the whole process of getting it in the car, the locked car, I like this whole process that went down that I had to figure out. I look back on it now and I'm like, how did I even figure that out? Or why, you know, what was going on up here? for me to, to do these things. And, um, it wasn't long after that. I'm, I'm, st- I'm not sure. My grandmother passed away when I was about 14, I believe. And, um, so I, you know, I don't know much about like what transpired for my mother to come pick me up. Um, now just to paint a really clear picture, my grandmother lived on three and a half acres on a, on a side cut through street between U S 41 and Pine Island road, uh, where I'm from in South Florida. And, um, My mother came to pick me up. My grandmother said that my mom was coming to get me. And um, I'd be living with her from that point forward. And I didn't know what that meant, didn't know anything. Um, So I went with my mom. I remember getting in my mom's car. I can remember the exact model of the car, everything. And um, she took me across the Kusahatchee River uh, that splits from where my grandmother lived to uh, central Fort Myers. Um, And I remember pulling up from my mother's one bedroom apartment on Washington Avenue. And I remember, I, I just remember this so clearly. There was people all over the street. Um, there was, you know, people that I I, uh, I hadn't um, encountered really living with my grandmother. Um, they had darker skin color than me. And I, you know, I was just like, what is going on? It was like a party outside on the street, you know? And um My mom always told me you can't go out. You can't, first of all, you can't go outside, then you can't leave the driveway. And we lived in a fourplex of one bedroom apartments next to a funeral home right off of Palm Beach Boulevard. Um, And um, I remember for a while I didn't have my bike and my bike got there. My mom still told me you can't leave the driveway. Well, of course, you know, I left the driveway and started exploring the neighborhood. Um, But moving forward, like at this point, uh, my mom had gotten married right after this point. And that was the first bit of alcohol that I had ingested into my system. Um, I had these cousins that they weren't even cousins; they were like god kids. I don't know what you call those, but my parents were their, their their godmother and godfather, or at least my soon to be uh, stepfather. Um, and they kept feeding me this orange slushy drink, and I just remember, you know, feeling something. It wasn't my first drunk, but I remember feeling something, and I sometimes. Um, in the wedding party, uh, the wedding party took part in, uh, it was in a fire hall. They had a band and, um, it was dark. And I remember hiding underneath the bridal table on, I laid on the chairs and I pulled the tablecloth over me and I just laid there because I was, I felt so out of place and I felt so, I just wanted to hide. And that's what I did. Well, after a while, people realized that I wasn't there. And I remember the lights coming on and people scattering around looking for me i heard my name called many times and i just laid there and i remember that moment i felt like you know now the attention's on me because the attention was all off of me at that point um and it had been it seemed like my whole life you know i just felt different i felt out of place with everything and um i sat there they called the called the police The police showed up, they came in and that's when I knew it was time to to crawl out from underneath her. Of course, my mom was distraught. She was crying. Um, But it's just like these little glimpses of, of, you know, to me, it's insanity, right? Like, you know, that insanity, that little bit of insanity just graduated and graduated and multiplied throughout my life. Um, You know, and then it was time to go to school and, you know, I became the minority when I went to school with my grandmother. I was uh, she had me in a. it was the Lutheran school. So it was a, you know, it was a, a faith based school for a couple of years. And then I go to a public school and, um, you know, everything you could imagine, I was picked on, beat up, bullied, all that kind of stuff. Um, I was beat up trying to play football one time and then urinated on afterwards. And all of this stuff just made me feel less than, um, you know, and it's not the reason why I, you know, why I drank or, or used drugs. Drugs are a part of my story. I won't talk about it too much, but, um, it's just like all this stuff added up is every reason why I, I, you know, decided, but that's, you know, again, that wasn't the reason, you know, the the problem wasn't the alcohol and the substance. Um, so moving forward, um, I started to get to know some kids in the neighborhood and all I wanted to do was fit in and I didn't want to get beat up anymore. I just didn't want to have those, that tension or that, um, I just, I just wanted to fit in. I just wanted to be a part of, and, um, so I started, I had a friend and I'll just say his first name. His friend. His name is Rainier. Um, he's somebody that took to me and he kind of like guided me through. He knew I was getting picked on a lot. and He kind of just walked me through and um, he guided me a lot. And I started uh, at 12 years old. I started doing some things, laying in ditches, throwing fruit at cars that went by Then it went, to, went to bricks and rocks. And then from there we started, I shot my first firearm at 12 years old. I can still remember the sound and the smell that, when that, when that uh, round went into the, uh, the tree stump that we, uh, that we shot. And from that point forward, I became infatuated with firearms. Um, by the age of 14, it was, uh, I was charged with six felony firearm uh, charges. I got convicted of five. And from that point forward, I thought I ruined my life. All my teachers at school, they knew everything. Um, there was some imprinting that was done that I would obviously later on learn about. Um, There was a deputy at the Lee County Justice Center that walked up to the cell that I was in and she told me I would never amount to shit. Excuse my language. Um, And I held on to that. I thought I had ruined my life. Um, She told me I'd never be a police officer. Of course, I had some true choice words to say about that, because that's exactly what I didn't want to be. Um, And I just, you know, I just implemented myself with uh, I say the right people at the time, but they ended up being the wrong people. And they got me involved in all kinds of different things. But what I started to receive was respect. Um, they taught me these. Some of these guys taught me about loyalty. They told me always to be, uh, you know, respectful of women and children, and um, to never allow yourself to be disrespected. And um, so, into my mid-teens and late teens, all of this uh, behavior and um, the happenings—they just multiplied over and over again. And. Um, you know, I, I, I had no client. I hadn't drank yet. Um, let's see 15, right around 15, 16 was like my first drunk. Um, some buddies and I took, a, a cooler out of somebody's pickup truck and we went up to the high school pool, which we live right across the street from, and and we drank. And that night I felt it. I remember walking home, I felt well, trying to get over the fence to get home. It <laughs> was, was a, it was a trip, but I remember walking home that night and, um, you know, we, I was in the middle and I had these two guys on my arms and we're just laughing and cutting up, and I finally felt like I was accepted and I was there, it was at that point. I felt that ease and comfort, you know, and, um, and I remember just wanting to do that every weekend and that, that would just continue on. Um, you know, the, I, some people in that neighborhood that I uh, met with my mother, they became my closest friends. There was, uh, there was nine of us total. Um. There's only uh, two of them that are left today. Uh, Drugs and alcohol played. uh, uh, It was a reason, or at least was involved as to why those seven aren't with us today. Um, Two of those guys were were my closest, closest friends, period, on this earth. Um, I get choked up every time I get to this point because the pain still runs deep. Um, I live in a place of honor of, of the, the people that have transitioned, um, but it still, it still hurts. Um, I'm not sure if I'll ever get rid of it, but um, I know that uh, if I live in honor um, of their memory, then, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing the right thing. And I, I know today that if I stay sober, I'm doing the right thing as well. Um, both of those two, my closest friends out of those nine, um, or at least the seven that were, uh, that transitioned, um, they both uh, took their own lives and, Without getting into all the happenings and all the stuff that we got involved in, in our 20s, um, I don't like to talk too much about, you know, or get caught up in too much about what it was like. Um, But things got really, really crazy, really fast. In our early 20s, we opened up a business um, that centralized in the uh, east coast of South Florida. So we moved over there and, um, you know, you got 21, 22 year olds running around with a couple hundred thousand dollars between you know the the three or four of us at the time the money that was coming in we didn't know how to manage it we didn't know what to do all we knew was to buy more product throw more parties and and just do what we wanted to do which was drink and, and do other things as well um it got to be too much for for my closest friend out of all those guys um sean was was if you put a hundred people in front of me, he's the last person I would have thought would have put a gun to his head and pulled the trigger. Um, but that's exactly what happened uh, February 13th. It was a Friday the 13th, 1998. Um, he was on the phone arguing with his girlfriend and um, his mom kept telling him uh, Bubba was his nickname, Bubba to put the gun away, put the gun away. And she went out to the mailbox and as she was checking the mail, the gun went off. Um, my friend Andre was on the way over to the house to let him borrow his car because Sean's car was in the customization shop and a bunch of work done. And um, he wanted to go back down to Fort Lauderdale to work things out with his girlfriend. And um, he didn't make it over there in time. Uh, uh, Andre was a, uh, a former uh, med-trained uh, army guy, um, and uh, there was nothing he could do. Um, they got Sean to the hospital at uh, 11 o'clock that night, 11.30, They pulled the plug on him. And um, his mother couldn't call me. She called me at 3.30 in the morning, and she told me what happened. Um, I was devastated and distraught that was that was one of the people that I could confide everything into we laughed we laughed so much and, and just had so much fun we watch each other's back his mother we can call her mama because she's just a sweet woman even though she knew a lot of what we were up to and, and what was going on, she didn't know exactly. But she always told us before we left that house, she said, "You've always take care of each other and be safe." I'll never forget that. Um, so after Sean passed away, I, I, you know, his mother was experiencing some things happening. She was seeing him having conversations with him right outside the bedroom and that happened. I wasn't seeing them, but I was having conversations and I felt him with me and I felt him around me. And it was the evilest, most darkest feeling. I didn't know what to do. Um, I was scared. And after uh, another happening that took place uh, in my uh, townhouse, um, as I was feeding a cat at the time, um, the whole house vibrated. Now this is South Florida. We don't have earthquakes. And if they do, they take place off the coast and... Um, only time there's loud noises is when there's, you know, thunderstorming and when the shuttle would come back and reenter and you would hear it or take off. And, um, but this, like, I, I can tell you that if I took this podium right here and just vibrated, the whole house vibrated, it was the most bizarre thing ever. The cat took off. That's how I knew it wasn't me. And I wasn't under the influence at the time I ran to my bedroom, jumped on the top of my girlfriend at the time and I was blowing my eyes out. That was the moment I knew that I had, I needed to do something. And, um, so after a while, one of, uh, uh Sean's mom's friends uh, suggested she go to a church and, and talk to a priest. And that's what she did after about three weeks or so, three to four weeks, she called me and she says, you know, I don't know what's going on, but something's, something's happening. She goes, it's starting to, to minimize and it's starting to alleviate. She goes, I think you should talk to somebody. Um, my grandfather was still alive at the time. And my grandmother had been separated since they lived in Florida. And, um, he was a member of a Catholic church. Uh, this is the type of guy that uh, if he wasn't watching baseball or football or there wasn't one on, he had Catholic church on the TV. That's just what he was. And um, so I went to my grandfather and I said, I need to talk to somebody at your church. So I did that. And uh, he got me in touch with a priest that I had seven sessions with over seven weeks. Um, most of the time during those seven sessions, I did most of the talking. Um, seven session, uh, the priest said, this is going to be a little bit different. He says, I'm going to do most of the talking. And hopefully I'm going to, he said, connect some dots for you. And I say that a lot because now going through the 12 steps to Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm able to look back and I'm able to look at who I was, how I was, and connect the dots to how it all evolved and how it all ended up. And um, so he went on to explain to me about, you know, being souls being trapped and all this stuff, purgatory and all that stuff. And, um, and at the beginning, he says, you know, I'll have a question for you at the end of this. And um, I said, okay. And so we got to that point and, you know, I felt a little bit better. He asked me if I felt a little better. I said, yes. And um, he says, you got ready for that question. And um, I said, yeah, go ahead. Shoot. You know, and um, he said, so why are you here? And I was like, well, I came to you to, you know, to, to get answers. And now he would stop because the only thing that God wants you to do is answer from, from your heart and not your head. Because, because this up here will twist you and throw you. In. And again, I didn't know anything about recovery. I didn't know anything about any of this. And you know going through recovery years later, it all, all just makes sense. The dots connected. Um, and so he said, uh, you know, just answer, try to answer from your heart. Because that's what, you, that's what God wants and So um, well, I sat there for a minute and I remember kind of like rubbing my knees. And I was like, you know what, man, I'm 24 years old. I ain't got no clue. And he said, stop. He said, it's usually the first thing that comes to you like that. I took a few seconds and I just said to help people. I don't know where it came from. I wasn't the type of person that helped anybody. I helped myself and that was it. And the people that were directly around me. Um, he stood up, he grabbed my arms up underneath, shook me, and he said, son, that's why we're here. He said, that's our purpose. It's to love and help one another. Um, so moving forward, um, you know, dealing with the transitions of, of those other six men, um, one of the men's his his sister was uh his sister's sister was oh, it's so hard <laughs> his sister was murdered over a direct kind of indirect result of off of what we were involved in and i was getting like these intuitive signs and i saw these visions of one night laying in bed when i couldn't sleep and um, all they kept saying was it's time it's time i went to one of my friends and i said we got to get out of this man something's not right this is evil um two and a half weeks later that gentleman Passed away. Um, he was shot, killed, and um, so it's like I look back and I, I see all. I see where God was in my life. My Creator was in my life the whole time, you know. But I was just too blind. My eyes were shut. You know, my eyes were completely shut, and um, that's when the drinking really took off. Um, and then in 2000, then I uh, I got involved in all kinds of stuff in South Florida. Um, if you know anything about South Florida, the prescription pill business was was off and popping it was a wild wild west down there and i was fully enveloped in that and um october of 2010 the database was going up and we knew it was going up so i got out of there because i thought for sure there should be indictments that were going to roll and um so i went to new york with a friend of mine just to clear my head and kind of get a hold of it in case the indictments came down i had time for a lawyer to react and um i got up there and i was good for a while i wasn't drinking i wasn't smoking i wasn't doing anything and um, then i started you know partying and doing this and um I was asked to to take a job at the place where my my uh, buddy that owns a restaurant in South Florida he closes his restaurant for four months out of the year down in Florida and goes up to New York and he works up there and he makes really good money in about two three months and then takes that money and invests into his uh, business down in Florida which is still open and um so I went up there and I started working for his boss and um it was it was the uh, the business that I came from which was the marine boat business and um you know, I just remember, like, just not having any purpose. Like, I started having these glimpses of just, what am I going to do with my life? I know I can't do this stuff forever. I know I'm not going to last. I'm going to end up locked up for the rest of my life or I'm going to disappear. Somebody's going to leave me in a field or a ditch. And um, it just escalated. You know, I remember uh, December of 2014 is when um, my, my choice of drink was vodka. And um, something, something snapped. Something happened vodka turned me into an angry violent drunk and it was never like that i was always the happy guy hooting and hollering and just having a good time something flipped in my brain and in my body or spiritually when i look back at it and um i started putting my hands on people um attacking people for no reason like and not remembering any any of it until the next day and we all know those those things instead of just waking up in bushes now i'm attacking people like Cops and I mean, it was just it was absolute insanity. Um, and I remember asking myself in drunken stupors before I blacked out, like, what is wrong with me? What is wrong with me? I, I can't stop like the bottle. Like I remember sleeping with my bottle. You know, I ended up switching to tequila and then I became that happy drunk again. And then tequila just stopped working. I could drink a whole bottle of Patron and, and nothing would happen. And um, so I went to the next best thing that, that I knew that I couldn't stand the taste of, which was whiskey, because it gave me that instant effect that I was looking for. It took me instantly out of myself and it got me out of right here, right now, immediately after a few swigs. And I had already had a, uh, my first DUI was in 2006 in uh, South Florida. Um, uh, officer saw me sleeping in my truck. <sighs> <laughs> I still have sort of. I, I mean, I don't have resentment anymore about that, but it's just like really. I was sleeping in my truck. I tried to hand her a twenty dollar bill instead of my driver's license. I don't remember that, but when I read my discovery. I was like, Jesus. Um, so that was six. I got my uh, my next um, DUI was up in New York, uh, 2013, December of 2013. Um, And then the following year, December of 2014, um, I got my second, and that was a felony. That's the one I'm currently open and and fighting against. Um, When something happened, um, again, like it escalated that quick for me. It was a very, very slow progression for me. um, But man, when it hit, it flipped. You know, it flipped me 180 degrees, Mach 5 in the opposite direction. And I didn't know what to do. Um, with, uh, with none of my close friends, uh, left, uh, one of the guys had, uh, had actually one of those friends that are the two guys that are still alive. Um, he went through the whole recovery thing. I remember used to, I used to, drop him off at meetings. I let him stay with me for a while. I used to drop him off at meetings in downtown Cape Coral and I'd have either a drink or, you know, a cigar ready to light as soon as he got out the car. And, um, yeah, I remember him looking at me one time and he says, you know, maybe you should come in sometime. And that was the hand of AA reaching out. And I had no clue, man. My eyes were still shut. And so, you know, after, and I want to back up a little bit because I want to connect the dots at the end. Um, When Sean passed away, my closest friend, that was the gentleman that uh, committed suicide in his mother's bedroom. I had to work the next day. His mom called me at 3.30 in the morning. I had to be work at 4 o'clock. I went to work because it's the only thing I knew how to do I knew, how to, I knew how to hustle on the streets and I knew how to go to work to get out of my head. And that's what I did. I'm, I'm, I'm an alcoholic and I'm also a workaholic. Um, they run they run uh, parallel, it seems like. And um, I remember going to work that night and I was a server at a restaurant and I was trying to push through. I was trying to serve my tables with, with great, I, I couldn't do it. I lost it. I went to one of the girls. I said, you guys have to split my tables up. I went out backside of the restaurant and I sat next to the dumpster on the curb. I stuck my head in between my knees and it was just ball uncontrollably and this colombian kid comes out of the kitchen he was one of the prep cooks and he sat right down next to me and put his arm around me and um he said what's the matter and i told him he said it's okay he comforted me never I, I never even spoke to this guy in the kitchen you know he was just doing his thing and um unfortunately he's out struggling right now he's um he's out chasing demons or something um He's buying all kinds of paranormal equipment and chasing the demons that are, that are in his life because he's an alcoholic just like us. And he knows it. Um, so, you know, speeding back up to New York, um, when I got in that, I called my deep, dark, evil hole that I was in that I was digging. And I just kept digging and digging. Um, I just basically got to the point where I was just done with life. I, I didn't want to breathe anymore. I tried to drink myself to sleep and not wake up. It didn't work um i'd get so mad that i'd wake up like i i just remember it i remember stomping around my house and you know just mad that i woke up and um complete insanity and so when i realized that drinking wasn't going to take me out i fell in love with taking myself out um with the idea of it with the planning of it i wrote all my letters to my family i wrote letters to a couple ex-girlfriends one very nice and one not so nice um but um I, I, I planned it out. I set a date. And I remember, you know, somebody said it in one of our meetings last week. He said it so perfectly, it hit me right in my heart. He said, There's something eerie about um, planning your own exit from this earth. Um, you actually, like, you know, and I know for me, he said it perfectly, like, you actually become obsessed with it and you fall in love with it. And it's like comforting. That's the point I got to. Like, I was actually like, Like, it was like I, you know, it was like I was meeting my future wife or something or, you know, just like I embraced it and I fell in love with it and the comfort was just absolutely crazy. I ended up, um, I couldn't figure out how I was going to go. I couldn't shoot myself because that's how Sean went, taking a bunch of pills that just sounded brutal. Um, I thought about the hanging stuff and um, I was laying in bed one morning about six, seven o'clock in the morning. I lived right. On top of a mountain it's called radar hill um and right down at the bottom across the street is the uh, it's a major railway that runs from the east to the west coast and um it runs right next to the susquehanna river up there in upstate new york and um i heard the train i heard that train going, and i said that's all that's it right there so the next day on my bike i went down there i napped for a while I went down on my bike and i went down to the river and i got on that side of the river and. I found a place, and that's what I—that's—that's that's what it was. That's what I was going to do. I was going to take myself out on those tracks. And I remember looking up videos, looking up pictures of people that had done it. I had like researched and studied about how long the brain is alive after it's off of the body, and you know, this is this is the complete insanity that alcohol took me to. It was just absolutely. I look back on it, and I'm just like, my gosh, I can't believe that was me. It, it wasn't me. It wasn't my true self. It wasn't me connected to any power greater than myself. I had no power in my life. I never had any type of faith or, or religious background. The only I always say the only time I ever prayed was when I was locked up, or I was driving down the road, and I knew that if I got flipped, that I was I, I could be in trouble. You know, and then I'd start praying then. You know, and so looking back, you know, it's like what was I praying for? If I didn't believe, and you know, I, there's no way I could possibly believe in a power greater than myself for a God or creator or anything because they took all my friends you know how can I believe like I, I just shut everything out I can't say I was ag- agnostic I can't say I was any of that but um things just they escalated from that point and um it was about 1 30 in the morning um on a night I'd been with some friends and um they had they had to drive me home because I was too intoxicated to drive myself home and um they let me out of the post office because we were snowed in and um I blacked out. The last thing I remember is their taillights going down the road. And um, that's it. Next thing I remember is waking up in a bunch of rocks and, and grass and um, just freezing cold. And my phone was ringing. Now, that gentleman I talked about that sat next to me on my curb outside that dumpster outside that restaurant. I hadn't talked to him in over a year. And it was him. He was out here in California. He was eight months sober. He was up in L.A and um, he went. He worked a food truck in downtown LA. So he had to get up at like 3.30 in the morning and um, he started prepping, getting ready. And uh, he said he got down on his knees and he prayed because that's where he was at when he was recovered. And um, he said, as he was praying, he thought about me. and So he made a mental note, I need to call him. I haven't talked to him. I need to let him know what's going on. This is one of my brothers. I mean, he's, he's family to me, even though he's not blood, he's family. God put him in my life at my worst, I thought worst possible point at that time, Um, you know, and and that's just how it works. You know, that's how how God works in our lives. um, It took me so long to to even accept that. And um, so I picked up the phone and um, I just immediately started crying. And he asked, you know, what was going on? I told him, like, I don't know. I'm sitting here next to these tracks. I'm I'm, I'm laying down at the embankment of the railroad tracks right in the spot that I planned to go. I was about two and a half weeks or so prior to my date that I set. So that's how close I was. Um, Why I took myself down there in a drunken blackout, I don't know, I can't tell you, I was blacked out. So I was talking to him for a little bit and um, at some point in the conversation, he asked me if I wanted help. I immediately said yes, with no hesitation. I said, I need to do something. I can't stop drinking and I really don't wanna die, man. And he said, I, I don't want you to die, you know? And um, so he got in touch with somebody They got in touch with me. They ended up getting me out of California, ended up in treatment on Laguna Beach. I was in that treatment center as a client for 11 months. Um, something snapped. I, I didn't get involved in the steps. I had a sponsor. Um, I remember uh, when he uh, when I asked him to be my sponsor, he says, okay, I want you is 7 a.m. Okay for you to call me. And I, every day is what he said. And I said, no, man, you don't understand. I'm like low maintenance. Like I don't, I don't need to call you every day. So I was already trying to manipulate my own recovery. Um, I was an extremely negative person in treatment, um, taking my first chip, um, that took me forever to take. I was in detox for 72 days when they finally had a detox. I went to a few meetings and everybody was like, go get a chip. And uh, taking my first chip, I went up and grabbed the chip and I didn't say my name or anything. So I'm walking back down the aisle at the gaming club and some guy was sitting at a table and he kind of barked at me and he said, who are you? And like, I looked over my shoulder and I said, who the F are you, man? Like, but <laughs> just give you an idea, like how negative I was. That's the negative person I was. Um, you know, the 12 steps of alcoholics Anonymous have, have completely flipped that. Negativity has no place in my life anymore. It just doesn't. Like I, I don't, um, I don't look at anything in my life as issues or problems. I look at them as opportunities. Like that's just the way I look at things. And some people say, "Oh, it's really easy to say that," but application-wise, man, Um, it's because I have this power in my life. You know, the Big Book uh, of Alcoholics Anonymous on page forty-five says, "Lack of power is our dilemma." So where do I find this power? Where do I get this power? What is this power? I don't think about what the power is anymore. I know the power it's, it's in my life. Like I feel it. I see it working within all of y'all. Um, it's amazing. Like I, I just, I can't even, I, I was never able to fathom being this clear headed and, and it's, it's a direct result of 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I'm going to connect a couple dots of that story. Um, you know, that priest, when he said to me, uh, the, one of the last things he said to me is um, when, when he said, that's it, son, you know, uh, we're here to love and help one another and now we can. I was two years sober and I was going to this like I was seeking spiritually um, and I was I was being guided pretty well at the time, but I was still hesitant. I was doing a lot of praying and meditating on what my purpose was. And um, now it's my purpose. Now I'm sober. Now I've, I've got some traction here. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to turn into this positive person instead of this negative person. Um, now what? Now what's my purpose? I didn't get anything. I prayed and meditated so hard for five months, I didn't get anything. So I was talking to uh, an old timer at the Canning Club in and I, talk, I just, you know, my sponsor said, talk to people about it. So I got this guy one night and I said, hey man, let me run something by and bounce something off you. So I told him where I was at and he says, man, he goes, uh, did you do a four-step? You did a fifth step? I said, yeah. He said, "On them columns and all that stuff you've written down, what, what did what did all that stuff go back to?" I was like, "Selfishness and self-centeredness." And he says, it "Kind of sounds like you're being selfish, man, because you're praying for your purpose. You just think about everybody else in this world. Let's, you know, think about this whole world and everybody in it as as one." Um, and um, so I did that. It, it, it was maybe two weeks, maybe not. I had we had this beautiful balcony that you know overlooked uh, Victoria Beach and. Um, I remember that was like my first spiritual occurrence happening. Um, I came out of that meditation. I remember what that priest had said to me back when I was 24 years old and it just hit me. I was like, this program is about helping people. It's about love. It's about no matter what we don't drink, no matter what and we always help them no matter what, right. We reach our hands out, we, we, you know, and that's just something that I'm trying to get a lot better at. You know, um, I'm not the most uh, – I don't throw myself in the middle. I like to scour around the edges and then kind of, like, kind of work my way in. Um, it's just old behavior and old habits. Um, but, but I can tell you that with this power in my life, like, I'm slowly, even this past year, I'm stripping off all those insecurities. Um, I almost didn't want to show up tonight because I have this bump on my face, and I almost called Paige and Laura and said, I can't – I can't – Man, it's like, I, you know, but um, gosh – it's crazy, right? Insanity. Um, but moving forward, so I came up with this whole thing after that, that spiritual, uh, it was a spiritual experience for me. Um, you know, like I, I truly believe that, you know, our main purpose on this, in this place we call Earth is to love and help one another in whatever capacity we can throughout our day because all we have is today and that, and that's that's it. But that's just the way I, I try to keep things simple. Um, I'm a very logical thinker, but I don't like to get all crazy and off into the intellectual stuff. Like I like to keep it really simple. That's what I need to, to roll. Um, you know, just a. you think about this, the things that I've learned, you know, maybe in the past couple of years, like the, you know, the big book states, we have, we have a threefold illness. Right. Um, and I, I can't remember if this was said in our big book workshop or something that I kind of twisted into it or something, but like, I don't even, the way my mind works now is like I try to keep everything positive. I try to project positivity so that maybe somebody catches it and rolls with it. Um, I don't see it as a threefold illness. I look at it as a twofold with a spiritual solution, you know, because I'm 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 I suffer from a spiritual malady. Thank you. I suffer from a spiritual malady and spiritual disconnect. Um, you know, the the mental obsession is that little voice that sits somewhere back here that tells me it's okay to take that first drink. Um, a physical allergy that takes place once I take that drink, I can't stop. I was never able to stop. I either browned out or blacked out, you know, or the brownout led to the blackouts. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's just crazy. I look back, I never find my car. Never find my car, ever. No matter what state I live in. Um, and I spent some time in Detroit, you know, if you've been to downtown Detroit. But, um, anyways, um, you know, and it's like, I really got to dig deep. And, and I've been doing a lot of like seeking spiritually, you know, I want to dig into this power more. Um, I want to be able to project and carry this message with that power packaged up in it. Um, because it's completely changed my thinking, my decision making. I'm, I'm not perfect. You know, I don't walk on water and I definitely can't feed this room with one loaf of bread. You know, I, I don't play God anymore. I don't play the director um, but it creeps in. The ego creeps in here and there, and um, it creeps in in like bizarre, most bizarre ways now. You know, um, but going back to the the threefold illness, like I, I have to dig in and I have to, you know, find out like what's the nature of my alcoholism. Um, and so you package those those three pieces up, and it all comes back. Like I trace the the, the line back to um, it's it's a spiritual thing it's it's a spiritual disconnect it's malady um so what do i have to do i have to seek i have to believe i have to have faith in something i can't necessarily put my hands on or or, you know or see um but over the past six years um i can see it i see it working with you i can i can we can hug each other we can shake each other's hands like to me that's a form of uh, a transfer of, of compassion and love and that's how i see it working in everybody's lives today and um I know it's working in my life. Like I feel it in and out every aspect. Some things happen, and I'm just like, how in the heck did that? And then I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. Like there's something else going on there. It's a lot deeper. And that's what takes place in the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and throughout the steps, like you know, page 45 says it. Um, you know, when it's talking about lack of power is our dilemma, it talks about where am I going to find this power? The next, I think it's the first, second full paragraph on page 45, it says the main object of this book. Just to enable you to find a power greater in yourself which will solve your problem. 2 years in I didn't know that that alcohol and drugs weren't my problem. And that's when I started realizing that I'm the problem. You know, and that's where the real like recovery kind of bled in um, realizing that I have to take a look at my bedevilments. I have to take a look at you know the nature of the alcoholism and, and it, you know the, the I can easily become a walking bedevilment um as it's talked about on page 52 and um you know and I look back um I look back to those days where I said I did not want to drink you know and as it talks about in Jim and Fred's story and uh, more about alcoholism it talks about um not a cloud on the horizon oh my gosh man I look back and it was so many times like no I went way too hard last night or I went way too hard last week I'm gonna keep it cool all dd you know like all this oh man I was always drunk I came up drunk every time and mixed up in this and that. And I mean, it was just insane, complete insanity. Um, Or something I wanted to tie in and I just, I lost it. Um, But, you know, it's like, I talk about the bedouvelments. I talk about, you know, what are the source of my bedevilments? What are the source of my And What's the source of all this? And, you know, Bill W says it's selfishness and self-centeredness and, It's just perfectly lined out in 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, um, you know, I remember reading that book and none of it making sense so many times. And I heard somebody refer to it as a big blue sleeping pill. And I thought that was hilarious (laughs) because that's what it did for me the first like years. It just put me to sleep. But, um, you know, now it's like I can open that book and, uh, you know, I can look at some of the lines and look at why they put certain words in certain sentences, why these sentences here. It's just. It's one of the most amazing things that I've seen. It's one of the most amazing things that I've gone through. Um, it's completely turned uh, a negative individual that only cared about money and only cared about worldly possessions. And you know, I can sit here and you today and say, honestly, I can care less about all that today. I really don't. I mean, we all want to have nice things. Um, but all that stuff drove me. It drove the obsession. And in the end, it was alcohol that was that was that was my king. And um I'm just, I'm so blessed that not have that, you know, that decision making and that thought processes in my life that I had once before. There was so much evil and so much everything around me. And I never once took a look at how I was affecting people in the 12 steps of alcohol that allowed me to see. You know, it opened my eyes up. And I remember the guys on the street years ago telling me, keep your eyes wide open, keep your mouth shut. And, you know, I, I kind of took some things that I learned out there. And applied it to, to here. And it's like, you know, I wanna, I wanna be able to hustle with this. I wanna be able to reach as many people as I can, you know, because this absolutely changed my life. Um, it's like it's just it's amazing. It's I can't even put it into words. Like it completely flipped me from being that negative, selfish individual to caring about other people you know so when i think of somebody I, I can pick the phone up and ask them how they're doing walking other men like matt did you know through the 12 steps man this guy is four step but you know he, he did a thorough thorough four step and it's like you can almost see the layers of the onion peeled off as he's reading it like it's amazing you know and i'm um, just being a part of that is a blessing um you know, today, I look at everything as a blessing. Uh, one of my Native American friends said this to me a few years back. I uh, went to a sweat lodge, and I always try to end with this, that, you know, he asked me how I was doing when he greeted me in the driveway. And um, I said, man, I'm blessed, bro. And he put his arms around me, and he leaned into me, and he goes, listen, I'll never want you to forget this. Every step you take is a blessing, and every breath you take is a blessing. And I hold true to that. I hold true to that today, man, because it is. Because I shouldn't be here today. I should be locked up for the rest of my life for some of the things that I did, but I'm not. God kept me here for a reason. Um, and just like that priest said, you know, we're here to love and help one another however we can. It's exactly what we do here in Alcoholics Anonymous. We love and help one another, you know, with the hope and, and that these people, that you know, the ones that are struggling get it and they come in with us because we need them. You know, we need them. If you're new in here, we need you as much as you need us, you know. Um, Congratulations to the ship takers. It was Tiffany, Mike, and what was that old Persian guy's name? Pej, that's right. I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) I love Pej. Pej is the hardest working individual I know in the recovery. You know, it's like I always say this he unknowingly shows me um, what I need to do just by watching and listening to that man. Thank you for what you do, and thank you for the ones that have come before me. you know, if I could close with anything, if you're new in here, just stay. Um, that's what I did. I didn't want to be here. I did not want to be here, and I fought it, fought it, and fought it. But I stayed for some reason, Something I kept me here. And I'm so grateful that I got to stay here. So thank you for allowing me to come share with you all this evening. I love you.